You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning and welcome to the Dean's Class. Uh, Very grateful for you tuning in as we continue our study in Ephesians chapter 3. And I'm also grateful for all of you who have tuned in and keep track of my hair growth and uh, I realize uh, that it is in need of uh, some significant work, but we're all in this together. And so uh, in some ways, I've taken the Nazarite vow and uh, probably am not going to get a haircut until uh, somebody who is uh, professionally trained uh, can cut my hair. But I'm sorry if it's a distraction to you, uh, but uh, for me, it may be what's left of my crowning glory and my youth. This morning we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, and we're going to leave the remainder of chapter 2 along with the last two verses of chapter 1, which we skipped over a couple weeks back, for our conversation on the church, which is going to take place when we get to chapter 4. And because uh, now basically I'm not going anywhere this summer, I will probably spend quite a few weeks uh, talking about the church And uh, hopefully that will be an edifying conversation because there's certainly a lot to say, or rather God has a lot to say here in Ephesians. Well, let's uh, pray before we go to God's Word. Lord, we pray that you would uh, help open our eyes to what you would have us see in your Word, that you would not leave us to ourselves, but send your Spirit to speak to us and through your Word And, Lord, that we might know this great mystery of the gospel that is revealed and what it means to be stewards uh, of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given for me, I'm sorry, Verse 2. I'm just going to start again. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, oh, jeez. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. In God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you, 
not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Paul has two great aims in his life that he now uh, gets to the second one. In the first one, we find in chapter 1, verse 12, the oft-repeated phrase, for the praise or to the praise of His glory. And in chapter 1, verse 12, we read, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. That the main end of Paul's life is for the praise of His glory. That everything he says and does, every decision he makes, every act he commits, every word he speaks is to the praise of God's glory. So that when people watch Paul, when people hear Paul, they're left praising God. Not Paul, but praising God. That's always a great danger in uh, being a preacher of the gospel, is that people will remember you and say, oh, that was a great sermon. And there's nothing wrong with that. I appreciate the encouragement uh, when it's right to give it. I even appreciate the the positive, constructive uh, criticism uh, that I may need in order to improve in my preaching. Uh, But you don't want people walking away saying, that preacher is a very good preacher. You want them walking away singing, hallelujah, what a Savior. And so that was the aim of Paul's life, that he would decrease and that Jesus would increase. In fact, when he would leave a city, it would be to his credit and to the praise of Jesus that people would say, I don't remember who that preacher is, I don't know his name, but because of him I'm a believer now. This was the testimony of Charles Spurgeon who stumbled into the primitive Methodist chapel and heard this lay preacher on that sunny, on that snow, it's not sunny day, on that snowy day. He doesn't know what that man's name is and frankly, it's not important who that man was. What was most important is that that was the moment when Spurgeon Spurgeon had his eyes open to the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, and in that instant, he was converted. And so Paul lives for that. He lives for the praise of God's glory. But here in chapter 3, he gets to his second point, and that is to be given over wholly to God. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul may be in prison, literally, but better than that, more than that, he says, I'm a prisoner for Jesus Christ. I've been captivated by Him. He's consumed me. My life is completely hidden in Him. I am in Christ And so, Paul's second great aim is to be given over wholly to God. Not only do I want to bring praise to His name, but everything I say and do is with the aim of advancing the gospel and seeing people converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, even in my job when I'm a tent maker, I'm making money in order that I may go out and proclaim the gospel. I'm inviting these men and these women to join me in the ministry, 
Not because there's some sort of pecking order, but because they're, for the, they're there to advance the gospel and they have the particular skill set, they have the particular convictions, uh, whatever it might be, that's why they're a part of this ministry. He's no respecter of persons. I'm living in order to advance the gospel, which is to the praise of His glory. And he gets taken away by this. There are other places in Paul's writings where Paul launches off in a completely different direction. If you have your Bible open, and I hope that you do, to Ephesians chapter 3, what do you see at the very end of verse 1? A dash. Because here, Paul gets completely sidetracked. It's the equivalent of saying that basically verses 2 through 13 could be put in parentheses. And off he goes. And what does he talk about? He begins to talk about his ministry and what it means to be called to be a steward of God's grace. So actually, verse 1 he begin, he's actually meaning to talk about praying for the Ephesians. And how do we know that? Because verse 14 is really what he was meaning to say back in verse 2. So the full thought, if you get rid of the parentheses, says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ, Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, So really, he meant to talk about prayer, and he does get to that in verse 14 and following, but here he goes off on the mystery of the gospel revealed and his part that God has him play in it. And of course, they do know and have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, that God had given him something, a task and to something, the, the, the grace of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to administer to God's people, in this case, in Ephesus. Uh, the role is very much like that of uh, Jacob uh, when he was in Egypt and Pharaoh made him a sort of minister over uh, the foodstuffs in Egypt in the midst of a famine that it was up to Jacob to determine who got what so that it wouldn't run out. He distributed it as he thought necessary in his wisdom how it ought to be distributed. And to do that in such a way that's not greedy or is necessarily overly zealous, but to distribute the right amount at the right time. And in the same way, that was Paul's call to the church there in Ephesus. And that's what he had been given over to do, to be a steward over God's grace that he poured out gratuitously to God's people there. But then he begins to talk about this mystery, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ in Christ Jesus through the gospel." 
He's giving some testimony here as to how he became a minister of the gospel. Now, think about Paul. It's remarkable to me that God seems to always pick the wrong person for the job that he has in store. And so when they're in that position, it's clear that it's God that is doing the work and not the individual. So in the case of Paul, Paul is called into fellowship with the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus while he's going to kidnap Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem for a possible extrajudicial killing. And when Paul is converted and God speaks to other Christians and says, here's Paul, the feeling is, ooh, I've heard of him. I don't feel safe even going to him. And yet this is who God has chosen to be the apostle to the Gentiles, which is exactly the the mystery that is being unfolded, that the gospel and to be made the people of God is not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. And for 99% of you listening this morning, that doesn't seem that radical. But think about the position of the Gentile in the Jewish world. The word Gentile was like the word dog. Gentiles weren't able to enter into uh, the, the temple complex like, all, like the Jews were able to enter into the temple complex. They had to stand on the outside looking in. And then certainly they were God-fearing Gentiles, but they were still Gentiles. They were lesser uh, than, than Jews. And yet God now has grafted Gentiles into His family, into His people. And it's a radical notion In the Old Testament, you can read, it's clear that God had a plan for the Gentiles. But it's not until you get to the New Testament that that plan is revealed. And when we talk about mystery in the New Testament, it's not like the way that we would use mystery in English, like Agatha Christie, or that which is uh, completely obscure that you really have to dig and discern through in order to see it. It wasn't as if Paul and others were conversing together and reasoned out, aha, it's to the Gentiles. Mystery in the Bible is something that is hidden, but is going to ultimately be revealed and to be revealed with clarity. So it's almost like an open secret. It's not something that that you have to kind of look sideways at or one of those, uh, remember those things back in the 90s where you had to cross your eyes to be able to see the image in the picture that looking at it with normal eyes looked like just a bunch of squiggly lines. No. It's plain. It's obvious. It's now made known. And that's what he has been given over to to offer the gospel to the Gentile nations that they might be brought into God, they might be made into God's people. And as a steward of this grace, he was given wholly over to it. I love reading George Whitfield's old journals, and often as he began to preach throughout 
England and even Scotland and Wales, and especially in the United States, an oft-repeated phrase that he would use is that he offered them Christ freely. That's all he did. Or as John Wesley, his partner, said, you have nothing to do but to save souls. That's what they lived for, offering Christ freely. And that's what Paul lived for. But lest you think that this just applies to ministers of the gospel or even extraordinary ministers of the gospel like Paul, you would be wrong. The call to be a steward of God's grace is for every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it may be that you're not called to pulpit ministry. You're not called to be a preacher or a teacher. It may be that you're simply called to be a Sunday school teacher, which is nothing simple at all. It may be that you're called to a different role in the life of the church. It may be that you are called to simply be in fellowship with believers and to support God's church in other ways, whether that be through your skill set or through uh, your uh, monetary gifts or, or whatever it may be. But the idea that Paul is conveying here is that we're all given over to the same cause. And the question he's begging is, what are you living your life for? I've been thinking about this a lot in quarantine you begin to see, well, what was important in life before quarantine, you realize now you can probably do away with it. That it turned out that this thing that was so significant, you may not go back to doing or you may not go back to putting any value in it. And if life were to continue to go on as it is, many of us would feel a sense of hopelessness and certainly aimlessness because we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. I'm exhausted. I feel like I'm in this holding pattern. But it may be that God is using this moment for you and I to discern, what am I living for? Can any of us actually say, I'm living for the Lord Jesus Christ? Why am I a lawyer? Why am I a businessman? Why am I a nurse? Why am I a stay-at-home mom? Why am I a doctor? Why am I a plumber? Because of Jesus Christ. Why do I go to the job that I go to? So that I can let others know who Jesus is and that He came to save Why has God allowed me to make the amount of money that I'm making? So that I can invest in the ministry of Jesus Christ so that others might come to know Him, love Him, and serve Him. And it would be very hard for any of us to say, yes, that's my life. We might say, well, here's a little part of my life that I've given over to the advancement of the gospel, but the rest of it's mine. Or rather, the rest of it is to do what I choose to do with. And yes, the advancement of the gospel is one of my aims in life, but it's not my ultimate aim. It doesn't consume me. It doesn't help me in my decision-making process. In fact, when I think about it, it simply brings about conviction. 
Because the way that I live my life, because I'm not willing to give myself wholly over, may act as a hindrance to the advancement of the gospel rather than to advance it. Now, as a footnote, I do want to say that if you're now racked with guilt, I want you to know that Christ has come to set you free, even from the burden of guilt. And there's nothing wrong with spending money, especially on nice homes or vacations or investing in your child's education. I don't want you to think, family, we're going to eat bologna sandwiches for the rest of our lives uh, and uh, you're not going to go to college because all of our money is going to go to this, but it might. It might be that, that God has a call on your life to do something extreme like that. My prayer for our congregation is the same prayer that Paul has for the church in Ephesus, is that God would raise up people who would give themselves wholly over to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And by that, I especially mean the ministry of preaching and teaching. There is no greater joy than to get paid to do what I do. It's a remarkable thing. I pinch myself often because I cannot believe it. And it may be that God is working in your heart and saying, go, go. And then he begins to work in your heart in such a way that there's a burning within your bones that you can't put out, that you can't stop from pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ and his call on your life. And to do anything but give yourself over in service to him would leave you miserable. It may be a call to the mission field. It may be a call to, in fact, step up your evangelism to those whom you're closest to. It may be to say, do you know what? Every night I have this activity that I go to, but instead of that, I'm actually now going to take time to read the Bible with my children and sacrifice that for the sake of their spiritual well-being and mine. And right now, if you're saying, but God, I'm not equipped. I can't possibly go and do what you've called me to do. Well, that flies in the face of what Paul is saying here about what God has done in his life. God, more often than not, takes that which is from Nazareth and uses it to lift him up so that the spotlight is now on him. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's the hallmark of someone who's a gospel worker. I'm the least of the saints. I shouldn't be doing this. I don't have the skill set. I, I feel inferior. I, this, this isn't where I'm supposed to be, and yet that's exactly where God has placed you. In fact, I would be very careful around the person who thinks I'm the right guy for this job. I remember 
years ago in a bishop's search in the Diocese of South Carolina, there was one clergyman who said to the search committee, I know that God has called me to be the next bishop of South Carolina. Well, rightfully so. Alarm bells went off immediately because this individual was presuming for themselves something that God may in fact not be doing. And of course, it is good to eagerly desire and and to want to take certain offices in the life of the church. But if you're saying, I can do this better than anybody else, that may actually be an impediment to you being involved in gospel ministry. Because you yourself are saying, I have the skills, the gifts necessary for this, and oh, by the way, God is helping me. God becomes the helper rather than you. Going back to the Wesleys and the Whitfields, the stories of their preaching throughout the UK and in the United States And the great effect that their preaching had on what in their day would be considered the lowliest of people, uh, the least educated, the least sophisticated, uh, those that uh, society uh, thought were just sort of ragtag and uh, not to really give a thought to. Uh, In John Wesley's case, the, the Cornish miners who more often than not were mining copper and tin. And Wesley would go to Cornwall and begin to preach, and the fire fell. And so who did God use to touch the hearts and to bring the gospel to Cornish miners? Where did he go to find this person? To the ivory towers of Oxford to a fellow at Lincoln College, an academic, someone who was able to rub elbows with the more sophisticated and certainly had earned his, uh, had a pedigree about him that gave him that fellowship. That's who God called to minister to the Cornish miners. God doesn't really care about your station in life. Because when He calls you, He calls you. He calls you. I remember one summer I did some youth ministry at a church that was a couple hours outside of Washington, D.C. in in, uh, what was then rural Virginia. And in the congregation, uh, there was somebody that they said, oh, you must meet them. Uh, And uh, they, they really... Uh, wanted me to meet this person, and it became very clear that they wanted me to meet this person because of who they were. And uh, it wasn't until uh, sometime later that I found out that this person they wanted me to meet was the deputy chief of staff to Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis in the White House. Well, so what? (laughs) I mean, no offense to them, uh, but to them, that was a really significant position, and I suppose at some level it it, it is, uh, but in the kingdom of God, it doesn't really matter. In fact, what I learned in that congregation is that there was a man who was clearly on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. He was rumpled in his appearance. 
He sang too loudly. He was always wanting to offer himself up to, to sing a song that he had written on his guitar during the services, which was a bit of an affront to this congregation that thought themselves so sophisticated. And what I found is that this man that was being shunned by the congregation, that he was God's man, not the deputy chief of staff to a former first lady. Now, that again, that chief of staff, deputy chief of staff, may have been a faithful individual, and uh, God bless them. But from what I saw, here was a man who was called, who was equipped, and didn't give a thought to what other people thought. He wasn't obnoxious. In fact, he's one of the most humble men that I've ever met. And all these years later, in my prayer life, every once in a while, I give thanks for him. And how grateful, how grateful I am that it is better to be a servant in the courts of the Lord than it is to sit on the throne of government. So are you called? Yes. But what is Paul asking us this morning? Yes, discerning your calling. How are you being a steward of God's grace? But the bigger question that we're all thinking about right now, what are you living your life for? What is the end of your being? Are you living to the praise of His glory? And are you given over to the work of the gospel that He has called us to do? Right now, I would ask that you would pray, uh, not a prayer that would... I hate to say it, but set your sights too high. But that you would pray just something simply as, God, I know that I'm not given over to you. Help me to be the man and the woman that you've called me to be and a steward of your grace. Let's pray now. Oh, God, we do pray that we would be given over to the praise of your glory and that we would be stewards of your grace, Lord. Help us to understand what we're living life for, and the only life worth living is one with you, Lord Jesus, at the center. Everything else is a lie. Everything else is a chasing after the wind. You're the only real thing, Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed upon you that we might be stewards of your grace, stewards of your gospel, and that we might preach to anyone that you've given us over to preach to and no matter our gift set, no matter our confidence level, no matter our education, Lord, that we are all servants of the living God, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.